You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles. The projectionist says, Smicha. Hey, <laughs> I'm here with Yitzhak Kolakowski. Yitzhak, I know we're fighting off COVID. And uh, a couple of, uh, I found one gem from the public domain that I want to talk about with you tonight. Um, and I know, of course, you're a person who knows all about uh, gems from the public domain. Uh, let me talk, let me start tonight with something that uh, it got me thinking. Um, there was a, uh, uh, there was a, a filmmaker that was given a lot of credit for being the, the queen of avant-garde. Uh, she was a, 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 a young girl, came to America, a Jewish girl came to America, escaping, uh, the, you know, what was happening in communist Russia. Um, her name was Eleonora, uh, Derenkowski. Uh, her parents were quite intelligent and, uh, had been, uh, had been very advanced in terms of their education. And they gave their daughter, although they, uh, you know, he lived in Syracuse and he was, uh, he was, uh, a, a, became a doctor in a mental hospital, uh, in Syracuse. He ended up sending his daughter back to Europe. And she really, uh, there in the, uh, in that period, as a young girl really became exposed to all the different influences of, uh, of, of, of European high culture. And, uh, eventually, uh, she comes back to the United States. And uh, she first thinks that she wants to be a dancer. And through her involvement in uh, a dance troupe, she ends up meeting her second husband, who is a, a Czechoslovakian aspiring filmmaker called Alex- Alexander, after he changed his name uh, to Alexander Hamid. So she also changed her name to Maya Darren and Alexander Hamid. And together they. They decided that they were going to spurn the what was happening in Hollywood uh, in the 1940s. They didn't want, as she said, uh, to just produce things that held 90 minutes uh, of attention for a massive and motley audience. Um, she felt that what she was going to do is become a real artist, to not um, sacrifice what she was doing uh, which was to show drama and beauty to it because of a stream of words. She was going to produce silent films. In fact, films that didn't even have music. Um, she didn't want to have a plot uh, that had... Uh, she wanted to make her m- movies like poems. Um, she wanted to really fight the, the Hollywood, and she started making these, what you would call... Um, uh, experimental films, but eventually Maya and and her husband Alexander ended up uh, getting such prestige and fame that she was awarded a Guggenheim Prize, and she would lecture and promote her ideas of avant-garde independent filmmaking, and there's been so much analysis uh, that has been placed on her films, which are all available, almost all of them are available in the public domain, and one can see them. Uh, she 
does say that what she's trying to do is uh, convey the power of image again. It seems like she, what she was fighting, Yitzchak, was what the jazz singer really opened up, which was the power of talkies, uh, the idea of acting with your voice, exposition, story, um, music, dance. She felt that this was a betrayal of what film could do. And we know, Yitzhak, you're, you're a big fan, of course, of, of, of silent films. Uh, you probably know more about it than I do. Um, but, but we all know that there's such powerful imagery in silent films. Gloria Swanson, of course, who said in you know, Billy Wilder's incredible classic, um, Sunset Boulevard, it's not that the... Uh, it's not that the stars got, he says, the stars didn't get smaller, the pictures did. The pictures got smaller. Because the pictures were really somehow, uh, as, as Maya says, they weren't the Icar anymore. The Icar, of course, was not the Tamuna that, that could somehow stay with you, an image that could live with you. The Icar was the Dibur. The Icar was the expression, the dialogue. And again, I know, Yitzchak, of course, you're a big fan of, you know, of Howard Hawks and what he was able to do with the, the play, the front page. And, and one, of course, can see in there and in, um, in Preston Sturgis, one can see the incredible use of how words can push together uh, the verite. It wasn't, again, not just like a, a stage play, but actually the cacophony of words and speaking together uh, could really mean something. Cassavetes, of course, did this as well. But all of that really, in a way, stops you from emphasizing the picture, the idea. Uh, and that's what Darren tried to do. And uh, the film that she's most famous for is a film that I, I sort of think it might be interesting for for our uh, people listening to, to see. It's called Meshes in the Afternoon. Uh, and it's sort of like, what does it mean to have uh, to be in a dream state? And there's a lot of interesting symbolism and imagery. You could talk about that. Um, and Meshes in the Afternoon is the film that she's most known for, her and her husband. Uh, it has, it, it, it's, it, it definitely has its influences from uh, films you were familiar with, uh, Salvador Dali's and Brio's films that they made in, uh, in the early part of the century. Uh, and, and, but to me, the film that I got a lot of Hanoi from, and I, and I want to use it as a pick, something that Maya and her husband put together. It's called The Private Life of a Cat. And it's about a simple, there's no humans in it. There's no music in it. It's a, it's a tom, a white tomcat, a multicolored a female cat. And it deals with their courtship, you know, very briefly. It's a 20-minute film. And what, what's incredible about it is you see the, the, the courtship, the children that are born, the kittens that are born, the mother searching for the suitable place for the cats to be born. Um, I think it was the first time on film that you actually had the miracle of birth being uh, promoted. Uh, there were some places I saw when I was reading up on it that didn't want people seeing it in the museums. They didn't want kids seeing this idea of these uh, these small little fetuses coming out of their coming out of the uh, of the mother but uh to me you know it was so great being a cat person growing up and having cats 
my whole life, uh, you know, when I was a young person, to, to see the the mother uh, taking care of these kittens, uh, you would say, well, what kind of that's a that's a film to 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 promote. But the art, the 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 artistry that Darren and Hamid use uh, to put the perspective of the the mother as she's looking for a place, the way she is dealing with her newborns, um, uh, it, it was it was just so perfect uh, as they are grasping uh, for places to nurse, um, and the. Again, usually Hollywood uh, for many years didn't want to even show newborn children. Right? A newborn child looked like they were about three weeks old. Right? The, 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 the squishiness of those, of those newborn uh, cats and those kittens and also the, the, the indicators of the relationship between the tom and, and the female cat. Really, if you think about it, without having Darren needing to uh, Maya needing to emphasize anything. It really underscores the relationship between male and female. Uh, the female is so uh, protective. The female finds the place. The female is, is, is so noble. And, you know, the Tom, you know, comes in and is sort of interested about what's going on and, uh, you know, sniffs around and is sort of jealous that the uh, that the mom is spending so much time with with his progeny, and uh, he decides he wants to jump in the box too with her uh, in order to get attention. Uh, the cats sort of uh, two weeks later, you can see the mom lovingly taking the cats, uh, picking them by the scruff scruff of their neck, and none of this is with any cute music. None of it is with any uh, you know narrator off you know. Somehow describing these events in some cute type of way, like you know Disney did and others did in the Mutual of Omaha program, uh, why you know or any sort of these other things. What they did was this is life. Now it's true these animals were dependent on human beings giving them uh, their place to live, their boxes and their food. But here was just you know the 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 it, it isn't a nature film. But by showing us the idea of courtship and children and showing us the relationship between male and female, whether it was her husband's film or not, you get the sense of the primal role uh, that the female plays in bringing life into the world in terms of protection of life, in terms of the raising of the young. Uh, the role that the male has, and that the male's that the male's sense of, uh, of of boredom, the male's sense of wanting attention, all that stuff again. And I, I don't think I'm because I'm just a Talmudic person and I'm guilty. I think it's done in such a, a wonderful way, without being cutesy, that it not only brings out why people love cats, which is which is. Obvious there because you see how, how 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 great they are, how curious they are, how inventive they are. It really is a way to you now the kittens are now sort of grown up. <laughs> the male gets, the male gets antsy again and approaches the female. It's just twenty two minutes. I think they can be enjoyed by your little children at home. I think it could also be very much used as a uh, by adults 
And today we think about it, especially uh, the great technique that these avant-garde filmmakers used. And to me, you know, you can spend your time analyzing meshes in the afternoon and you can figure out what's the key and what's the knife and is it a dream and who's committing suicide and what's really happening and who's the grim reaper. This film is just straightforward, but at the same time, I think it's transportive in ways that, that again, that, that, that other color super films aren't able to it only took you 20 minutes, but it, it should put a big smile on your face and make you think a little bit more, maybe even appreciate your wife more than you already do. That's my first choice. Yitzhak, what do you got to offer? Well, I think going along these lines again of the surreal, uh, not as much that the, the cat movie is a surreal movie, but how uh, how Darren was influenced clearly by, as she said, by by Salvador Dali and the Andalusian dog, which is a very shocking type of a film with a very violent and sexual imagery that's, uh, you know, very difficult to really understand what is being brought out there. Quite often, a lot of people will say that the sheer violence of it is empowering uh, it, from a feminist standpoint, but to go to something much more uh simple and much more basic but also quite surreal uh art cloakey was uh you know famous for gumby and also for davian goliath and like darren was also influenced by uh eastern uh mystics and and religious figures uh apparently even though you know he's famous for making a you know very christian uh, show of Davy and Goliath when he finally made the Gumby movie in 1995 he dedicated it to a an Indian guru Sai Baba who uh, was uh, known to produce uh, kind of magic tricks that his followers believed to be some kind of a mystical manifestation and one of the things was that he would create uh, some kind of a smoke out of his hands or ashes uh, and the story goes that Art Cloakey had a little doll of uh, of Gumby, of his famous character that he created, and brought it to Sai Baba, and he produced the, supposedly the, this this supposedly holy ashes out of his fingers and placed it upon the Gumby uh, doll as as a demonstration of of his love and affection for this beloved character, and he, he was someone who preached love and, and unity in the world. Uh, but before uh, Cloakey did any of these things, he made a short film. It was a, a student film originally that he developed uh, into something that he released commercially. It was called Gumbasia. The title he took from, you know, as a, a, a kind of a, a nod to Fantasia. But the actual imagery... Uh, using the technique of stop motion, which had been used already for several decades, you know, by Willis O'Brien and Ray Harryhausen, uh, at that time, both of them were still active. Um, but the, they had, you know, uh, Harryhausen had already been doing a lot of children's programs and puppet tunes for, for, uh, George Powell and others. But I, I, but, and then later on, uh, before he started making the science fiction films, he made some uh, Mother Goose 
films, which were really quite brilliant stop motion animated films. But uh, Cloakey, I think, was the first one to use clay uh, and different colored clay. Uh, Harryhausen's shorts were in color. Uh, and then he went back to black and white, you know, when he started making science fiction and then back to color when he went back into fantasy. Uh, but Cloakey, even though it's it's not maybe not as good as Harryhausen's work or or O'Brien's work, but it's interesting that he used this uh, this mode of using clay, which later uh, got called claymation when some other artists started to use it. And uh, again, so his first film was just a plain, uh, you know, uh, surreal artwork, and it's it's quite interesting to look at, and it's it's set to music, unlike Darren's works, which which were totally silent, and then but it was uh, you know essentially silent, uh, you know, uh, art piece, but that with music oh. attached to it. And then, and then, and then later on, he when he created his characters of Gumby, he did he did start to he also they were quite surreal, even if they weren't right. Uh, but again, Cloakey, you know, Yitzchok, look, you know, again, I, I don't deny that pendant that they were, you know, Cloakey wanted to get he wanted to cash in or he wanted the people to buy up what he was trying to do in television, right? I mean, the the Gumby cartoons that are the reason why. Cloakey is even known, we're part of the old uh, original Howdy Doody show, right? That's part of what Buffalo Bob, <laughs> Buffalo Bob would, uh, listen, you're a big chassid of Krusty, right? Buffalo Bob was, was the first Krusty, right? In a way. And he was, sh- and he was showing the, he would show the kids, which would mean the, the, the audience at home would be able to see these cartoons, which were not really cartoons, were these claymation the pieces that uh, that that he had created, which were um, definitely artistic. I mean, definitely in a way different. I mean, I I I, I started by mentioning Gumbasia, particularly because that was that was before he became a commercial success. It was only once he he proved himself with that that he started to, and then he eventually released it commercially. But it was it was a student film. It wasn't wasn't meant to be. I understand? A, I'm saying Gumby. You know, look, claymation. You talked about claymation, of course. The uh, is it the Ard uh, the Ardmark Studio, um, Wallace and Gromit, right? Isn't Wallace and Gromit is definitely a a, a direct descendant of Cloakey, right? right? And they they took claymation. I mean, they took claymation to a to an incredible height in terms of what they were doing. But, but the idea of of uh, you know Gumby and Pokey and that world that he inhabits, it, 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 you're right. It does have uh, a certain avant-garde sensibility because everything can turn into anything else in one, right? Instantaneously, right? Um, you know, Gumby is ostensibly this 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 fellow who's sort of like a, you know, an adventurer, but you know, he can roll himself into a ball, and Pokey can roll himself into a ball, and you know, all of a sudden, like they they can. T- everything can turn into something else. Um, and it, 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 so I guess it does really, you know, push the boundaries of, of plot and narrative uh, in that way. Um, you know, I, I know that, uh, again, let me ask you something. It's like, do you feel that, uh, you know, you said you watched the Gumby movie, which of course is not a projectionist film, but do you think those original Gumby shorts would 
you think the kids of today would would appreciate it at all? I know my kids do, but uh, they're, maybe they're a little bit different than than a lot of other kids. But I mean, the things that I I, I think the ones that I appreciate the most, you know, on our other show, we we interviewed the uh, Native American chief recently, uh, one that I know my wife and I both <laughs> really really treasure very much was the it was one about the the kachinas it was about and it brought the uh, these uh, native american uh some sort of a deity or something uh rainmaker deities from i think from the southwest uh mythology you know with anasazi or the pueblo indian mythology and uh, and it was really a, a, a splendid, splendid thing, not only to teach about another culture in a very respectful way for that time to be brought out like that. It was it was, uh, you know, maybe by that, was something that, that was something that Cloakie did. It was a Gumby episode. It was an episode of it was Gumby. A Gumby episode. Wow. The painstaking effort to do. You know, claymation is, 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 you know, really speaks of, um, you know, we've talked about before the efforts that these uh, artists and, and would go into. I mean, hours and hours to be able to produce, you know, I guess the Gumby cartoons were about, you know, seven or eight minutes. I'm not sure exactly how long they were. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Strike, strikes me that's about how long they were. And I'm sure it took, I'm sure it took them quite a bit of time. Um, they're definitely, you know, they, I guess they were targeted for a juvenile audience. Uh, wasn't you know they, they were shown at a time you know, unlike some of the animation. Week, I think they were shown at a time they were meant for kids, but you know, right. they obviously they showed a tremendous amount, as you say, a tremendous amount of, of 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 ingenuity and 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 ideas that were that were being in there. Um, and it's too bad Gumby, you know, <laughs> had to be. I guess it was voiced by some woman. I think voiced Gumby. I think. <laughs> And it's too bad Gumby you know sounds the way he does. Like I, like I said, I think you know, I think I think Gumby's voice has been in most people's minds of our age, you know, has been replaced by you know Eddie Murphy's version of Gumby uh, from Saturday Night Live, where he you know, where he has Gumby's real voice is you know is a, is, is is some old Jew, you know. <laughs> I'm Gumby, damn it, I'm Gumby, um, and. But yeah, the, again, to me, it's a, I, I'm I'm willing to accept that he might have been in, in many ways more than just a guy that was trying to get a commercial paycheck. That maybe he was trying to you know push the boundaries a little bit more. You know, um, a lot of the things was also to experience these different cultures in a in a way. That right, was Gumby's, a- in other words, Gumby's adventures, Gumby and and and, and Pokey would would have an adventure. Every episode was taking them someplace, right? They would right. either be going to space or right. Yeah. So, yeah. It, I mean, look, we talked about animation last week, and one of the things that I, I said last week was the Simpsons is its own world, and part of the reason is is because you know they don't get old. You know, they're around for thirty years. One episode isn't connected to the last one, although sometimes it is. So, I think that's part of you know it was different than you know a lot of uh, what television usually is is an episode built on the other or somehow connected. I think in Gumby, basically, you know, every single episode is, you know, it, it was sort of like the, the new, you know, like it could be something completely different, right? He could, 
he could be in the old west he can imagine that he's uh he's going to space he can imagine that he's going back to the prehistoric times that was really part of the i guess the simch of watching Gumby. is yeah. you don't really need to have seen the episode before right especially the original ones some of the newer ones they they developed a more of a continuity later uh right, which which again you know that sort of speaks to you know to what we were talking about before or you know the idea that you know our, uh, commercialism needs to have uh, the characters needs to have a needs to have a brand. Um, I think part of when we when we talk about film having its power of its images, you know, it, it, um, uh, settled way, it's in the unsettling way uh, of what it's able to to invest within us uh, that makes it that way. I mean. You know, you know, we, we, we talk about uh, Yitzchak, you know, both of us, you know, have, have talked uh, at length in various forums about this, you know, this yin and yang between, uh, you know, what the talkies did and, and the silence. And I think the great masters of a of film, uh, uh, again, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to uh, purport to be a master uh, of the knowledge of, of, of the great silent masters. But I think even the ones in the, of the talkie era, and, and I would say like the two greatest that, that come to mind is John Ford and Hit, Alfred Hitchcock. Um, you know, these two really were able to never let uh, what Maya Darren was talking about, the, you know, the, the plot device uh, overwhelm the power of the images. You know, there's so many, so many if people think about the powerful images of film. Uh, you know, these two men who, who understood what it meant to have a plot and to have a story. And, to, and, and they were very careful about the actors they chose. But they also were extremely conscious of what, how to shoot a, a scene. Uh, they were able to understand where to place a scene. They were able to understand that sometimes... A discussion that's happening and a certain camera angle or a certain background is able to invest what seems to be a, a discussion between two people and gives it a certain strength and power, whether it's happening because there are bars that are imposed, whether it's happening because it's, it's occurring on the top of the Empire State Building or at the, or at the Statue of Liberty or at Mount Rushmore or in Monument Valley. All of that is really... Uh, uh, the ability to to understand that that we should you know again I, I believe make use of the sound capabilities and the technology uh, to be able to to advance the story in ways people expect, but yet within people's expectations to be able not to say it's all artsy and this is all you know again you know, because that's not going to bring people in. I mean, you want to use the medium to affect people as possible. Uh, again, every great teacher knew this. You start with a metaphor, you start with a story, you start with some cow to get people in the seats and, and you want to bring them with a beginning, middle and end, but you do it in a way that you lace it with such powerful imagery that it's worth another view. It's worth seeing it again. You want that, whatever that film is or program, you want people to to remember it afterwards, to think about what it meant, uh, to enjoy the com- camaraderie of discussing it, but also to privately think about it and for let it to stay with you. And I, and I think this is really 
You know, it's, it's, it's not a zero-sum option here. It's not, well, oh, it's like Gloria Swanson said. You know, the films that can only be great are, are the silent films because they understood what the power of, of image was. Um, it, it's really, the, I think, the ability to meld those two together uh, and, and to have that balance. And I think, you know, Hitch and, and, and John Ford were able to do that. You know, I, I mentioned before to you in a previous conversation about things that he did in the searchers. Hitch probably did it almost, you know, everybody almost waited for that, that super incredible shot that Hitch would, would have in almost every film. But, you know, Hitch was able to do that in, in films like Rope and other things where just the basic technique of what he was, how he was going to shoot the film or lifeboat uh, uh, where everything happens, we talked about that happening in, in one spot. This, is, I think, is really the chokhmah of of recognizing how to meld, you know, these two together. Um, there's there's always going to be room for the you know for the Klokis and 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 and, and uh, the um, but I think they're always going to be you know on the fringe. I mean, it's great that we can uh, you know uh, ring the bell for them and and have people watch them and, and maybe think about them. But I think if, if you if, if you want to be mashpia, we know that most people are going to want to know a plot. They want to, they want to know a story. And unfortunately, most of us are star. You know, we're attracted to a certain person. Ford understood that people want to see John Wayne or Jimmy Stewart. Uh, Hitchcock understood that people want to see Cary Grant. Um, and again, he used them like cattle, but, but, but you know that most people want to see and are attracted to a certain type, a certain person. And then you're able to, once you get them in the seat, you're able to do amazing things uh, and, and really upend their expectations. The same way Hitch did that, of course, in Psycho, you know, where you think it's going to be about the most beautiful blonde starlet, Janet Lee, And of course, you know, she gets killed off you know, 40 minutes into the film. So, um, you know, you know, you know I, unfortunately, these, these, these masters are, are, even though you would say today, everybody is standing on their shoulders. I don't know. I still feel they're few and, and, and far between. Uh, Yitzhak, you got another, uh, any, any other options? Because I've got one last thing to, to end this off with. Well, just not really a particular film. I mean, because I did, I think we both were, we're mentioning how how Dolly, you know, was influential in the Andalusian dog, and and I guess in a certain sense, even before him, I guess I will mention something, because you know he he was you know always producing these dream sequences even earlier in silent film. Uh, you had Windsor McKay, and again to go back to animation, even though he was more famous now perhaps for Gertie the dinosaur, but he was a a, a newspaper cartoonist and he made little dream, little nemo in dreamland and dreams of the rabbit fiend and he animated those as well and produced some very interesting uh not as surreal as anything dolly made you know they, they were dreams that had a story and a plot but he he explored things that at the time were new and and also even even if they were not as influential as dolly even if not as many people saw them they eventually grew to be, you know, the things that, you know, we see is very familiar now in 
how dream sequences are are produced and so forth. He he was probably more influential in his uh, you know in his uh, newspaper comics than he was in his films. Well, Winston McKay definitely uh, you know as you say you know, we talked about Gertie a little bit uh, you know Gertie the dinosaur and these 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 incredible feats of animation. You know he um, you know, he was very very um, disgusted by you know the money making aspect of animation and you know the people that that took ideas that he had and tried to patent them and use them specifically Winsor McKay was very very schmuck people stole exactly and you know um, it was was clearly yeah there was there was a cartoonist Bray I don't remember his first name he he just he literally stole Gertie the dinosaur. Just just made his own Gertie the dinosaur. Of course, you know. But that's because they, they didn't have the copyright laws that they used that that we are familiar with now. Back then, I mean, uh, I think I forgot the name Will, Willie. I don't remember the name uh, Wild Billy Wild. I think would he would uh, he stole Chaplin's act, you know, and, and he, he just uh, made his own. You know, Chaplin movies just, uh, and I've seen a lot of those that are, you know, they're not they're not Chaplin, even if it's the same little tramp character. It's just, it's it's just a, a cheap copy. So uh, yeah, that was he had what to be disgusted by uh, McKay because that's the, the it was a really a cutthroat type of a situation back then where. You know, people just did whatever they wanted. If they right, wanted. And, and again, you know, this was it, it, it was ruthless. There was there was the excitement of of a new medium, and um, the inventiveness uh, that that was on display. I mean, uh, the, the, the all new methods of filming and methods of of, of developing uh, things that we take for granted. Um, you know, they were all. Just- Development itself was was pretty much brand new at that time. It's, you know, right? Yeah. And so yeah, look, I, I think Windsor McKay is. Uh, you know, people can find uh, a lot about him, uh, especially you know compilation books uh, that deal with um, uh, newspaper comic strips and other things. You can see uh, Little Nemo in Slumberland. That is some stuff that really um, has never been topped. A, a, a lot of the stuff I always tell people is you, you got to look at the margins. There's so many little things that are going on on the little, like the, the, the uh, we talked last time about the detail in Pinocchio and things like that. You can definitely see in Windsor McKay. Um, <laughs> something that I, that I, that I, that I watched uh, that I really thought was worthwhile, which is um, 1961's film uh, from uh, Jack Clayton's The Innocents. Uh, which is based on the turn of the screw, Henry James's short story, and it, most people know the story. It's been uh, one of the most analyzed short novellas uh, that was ever written. I think if you you if you go to Google Scholar and you put in turn of the screw analysis, you're probably going to find pages and pages of you know, the analysis of what's going on. I mean, just to tell people who aren't familiar, uh, you have a uh, a governess who is asked to. Uh, to attend these two children that for some reason uh, their parents have died. Their uncle really doesn't have one, doesn't want much to do with them. And this young attractive governess is um, sent to be their caretaker. Uh, it's in the Bly Manor. Um, 
the, the little girl is not really guess, old enough, I guess, to go to school. The boy was going to school. Eventually, they find out he's expelled from school and he ends up showing up. Um, and the issue, the reason why it's uh, considered like a classic of horror and gothic horror was because um, there's been a murders. Uh, there's been, a, if not a murder, there's definitely been maybe a suicide, perhaps a murder that have occurred there. Uh, the former governess and the stable hand um, have are, are having an they had had an affair before. They have both died. Maybe one might have committed suicide after the other died. And the 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 story and the film is about how these ghosts, the spirits of those ghosts, are affecting the children, and that the children in some way seem, at least in the eyes of the governess, to be um, to be in, uh, almost possessed. Now again, these are only little children. These are brother and sister of a you know maybe perhaps eight and twelve, and yet or nine and twelve years old. And yet, what's happening is is that it's implied in the Henry James story, and even more so in Clayton's uh, definitive version because it's been filmed a number of times and done on television and radio. Um, he actually had the help of uh, Truman Capote who was one of the uh, screenwriters who really inserted the idea in the film um, that the, the, the little boy and girl were in a way uh, being possessed by urges and especially the sexual urges that had, had motivated the, the dead people and that the girl in a way was singing the type of song only uh, a girl whose whose lover had died. This is a song that she sings consistently in the in the movie, and the brother um, is also someone who uh, has this type of roguish, uh, uh, you know, vitality and um, machoism that somehow erupts in him. It's almost like the ghost, and the ghosts, of course, are also seen. Um, the uh, the the governess sees the ghosts in the short story, but what what Henry James leaves speculative are these just ideas that the governess has? Uh, he indicates that the governess, uh, although she is an attractive woman, has been raised by a very strict religious father, and that she just you know mouths the ideas of just pure love and how wonderful children are. But perhaps what's really going on is her repression. And that she herself is titillated by the idea of these two lovers that had been there. And then perhaps she is planting the idea of these ghosts uh, in her mind onto these children. And that was really the Henry James novel. And Clayton was able to finally, since, you know, 1961 was already an age where you could sort of be a little more bold, even with these, 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 these subjects that were considered, you know, um, the, the, the topic is, of course, more than just horror. It's horror, and it's, it really it deals with uh, the, the human passions that, that are always bubbling within us and when they begin to develop and how we begin to see them even in, in young children who mimic and then start developing into versions of the adults that they know, but also about what we, you know, the, what our eyes are able to fool us into seeing. And uh, Clayton, most of the characters in the film are pretty much, you know, Michael Redgrave has sort of a cameo as the uncle, but he 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 chose 
really, I think, the superstar of 1950s films, although this was a 1961 film, Deborah Kerr. And, and I don't know if you realize Deborah Kerr's range. I mean, Deborah Kerr was really, in many ways, she was a British actress, of course, but in, in many ways, she was really the face of serious female film, uh, other than in the noir films, where you had a, a, whole, a whole number of women that served that role in the 1950s. But in, in, in many of the big productions, whether it was From Here to Eternity or, or The King and I, um, you know, Deborah Kerr really represented, um, she's the actress you want. So she was really a very big star, uh, you know, really a very, very uh, important star in Hollywood at the time. Um, and, and she seems to be a very stellar person. I don't think there was much scandal uh, connected to her. But this film, she plays the governess, and she's really able to bring to it uh, an incredible depth. Um, you know, she starts off all wide-eyed and loving, but not in a stupid way. But you really, just like you know, you know, ten, you know, sort of seven, eight years later in Polanski's uh, *Rosemary's Baby* with Mia Farrow you really live together with Deborah Kerr's horror and recognizing what's going on. And, and I think the same way in Rosemary's Baby, although it's very obvious, it's actually graphic and internal where she thinks that she's, you know, Mia Farrow, of course, has, has been used by her husband, John Cassavetes, as was part of a demonic cult uh, to actually birth the, the son of Satan. I don't know if you knew what Rosemary's Baby was about, but that's what it's about. Uh, here in Clayton's film, uh, it isn't as literal. And what you get is um, the sense that she is being also uh, frightened by these, by these possessions that these ghosts and these children have on her. And that even though on one hand, they seem to be, um, you know, just like darling little children. On the other hand, just like Linda Blair and the Exorcist, although you couldn't use the foul language that was used in that film, you get a sense from the boy's role, Martin Stevens, who, uh, you know, was following up this film with a film that he had made. Uh, I know it's a big favorite of yours and mine, which is Village of the Damned, which is, of course, about uh, these children that are somehow space children that have been uh, planted into our into our planet by some sort of people from outer space, beings from outer space for these for these children. And of course, Martin Stevens plays again a very um, uh, a very dominating role here. And in fact, uh, you know, he, he, he makes a move on, uh, you know, he's only about nine or 10 years old, but he makes a move as if he is the stable hand. Uh, and in fact, as, as he, you know, as he seems to be killed uh, at the end of the film uh, by uh, Deborah Kerr, Deborah Kerr gives him this erotic, not erotic, but a very romantic kiss on the lips as if, you know, if you had any doubt about what was going on here, as, you know, he lies dying in her arms, she kisses him full on the lips, which was very shocking in 1961 in terms of what it said about her character. So, you know, I, I would, you know, this film, which also does incredible work uh, with its images of, of what's going on in nature at the time, in terms of spiders and other things that are happening and birds, um, and it's a uh, it's an inventive film, and a film I think that also uh, is able really you know like the masters like Hitchin and Ford Clayton I think this I think was probably his top achievement. He had been he had been making films for, for 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 decades, but I think I don't think he ever topped this one, which is again the Innocence, 
uh, from 61, which, um, you know, I think it'll stay with you as a, uh, you know, you know, you wonder, was it real? It, was she somehow, you know, is, was it perhaps all, you know, in the mind of someone who seems to be, you know, just the purest, wonderful uh, tzaddikas? Maybe it really shows you that, uh, you know, you can never really, pure, you can never, it's almost impossible to be uh, so pure and wonderful. So uh, I think that's about it. You know, I think we've gotten uh, uh, you know, some, uh, some definitely some gems that you might not have uh, seen and which I, I think are probably worth uh, for you to check out. So Yitzchak, I just got to tell you, to everybody else, um, watch your step on the way out. We'll see you. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 